0: As a social worker, um, I follow what we call a trans theoretical model of change, is that people, when they're active in their addiction, don't know they need to change. And so if we can just get them thinking about who they think they are, is not who they actually are, and get them saying, hey, is this who I want to be? Or is this who my environmental makes me be, only allows me to be? What can I change? Or what can I help others to help me change? And so the notion of to be human in our society, is to have some level of trauma. Now, is it severe enough to each addiction? For some people, absolutely. Some people are resilient and have the same circumstances and don't. So that's that unique aspect. What would trigger you may not trigger me. Welcome to Mental Edge
1: Lifestyle Podcast, where we talk to experts from around the world about PTSD, financial stress, sleep, mind-body connection, addiction, depression, fitness, and more. You will hear from others who have struggled, overcame obstacles, and continue to thrive. This is where you will learn the tools and resources you need to have a healthy mind and a healthy life.
2: What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Rick Scherznick. He's a professor of social work at King's University College, has authored over 150 peer-reviewed articles, and book chapters, and has been an invited presenter at over 200 national and international conferences, seminars, and workshops. Among his other books are Responding to the Oppression of Addiction, Workplace Wellness, and Just So You Know, A Counselor's Guide to Psychoactive Drugs. This episode was amazing. I had so much fun talking to Rick. I absolutely loved Taking his course at McMaster University online uh, in the Professional Addiction Studies program. His outlook and his message and his passion for the mental health and addiction field is truly amazing. Enough from me. Hope you enjoy this episode with Rick Scherznick. So I'm sitting down today with Rick Cernick. Just quickly, a little background on our connection. We met online, I guess, through the McMaster Professional Addiction Studies program. It was my very first course, was the Introduction to Addiction. And I absolutely loved it. I hadn't been back to school, so I wasn't sure I was going to go, and the way I guess you taught it online was was awesome, because you actually, and for people that have taken an online course or don't, you have to post daily or you have to have discussion topics and things like that and quizzes and activities. But on every discussion, you posted like comments on everybody's stuff, which to me is amazing. And then you always left with like a question to what they had to say. So really, so what I was kind of going with that is I was kind of on the fence of, I don't know how this is going to go online. I haven't been to school. And that really kind of set me on the path I'm now you know I've got probably like four courses left or something like that so I just kept taking them and learning and because a lot of it because of you because I really enjoyed it so.
0: For those people who take the time and interest for whatever reason they're interested in the field I think it's my obligation having been around a long time we've been doing this for over 30 years you become a historian but I've seen the field change so much and know the uh, commitment people have. Number one to studying this area, number two to doing it part time, and number three not to having a whole lot of financial resources to back them and taking these courses. You know what? My obligation is to provide you with the best education I can. And besides the fact I like to talk or type a lot, so this gives me a cause to uh, engage with a variety of typically very interesting people.
2: Yeah, I love it. And so let's then let's start though because we haven't done a proper introduction. So tell us about you, your background, kind of your story and. And what it is you what you do exactly,
0: and why? So I entered the field at a very interesting time. I had my first job in the addiction field was in 1986. Before then, I had worked in a hospital briefly on a contract. I'd worked as a community planner and social planning council, doing general community wellness, poverty, social justice issues. And this opportunity came around 1986, and quite earnestly. In the last 30 years, the addiction field has just grown incredibly. Back then. Um, I was hired um, to be the social worker in the Addiction Research Foundation office for Hamilton. Up until that point in time, in Canada, there had been really the primary focus of addiction counseling had been either through AA and NA, the 12-step movement, or very much through church and Christian counseling. And so, my two of my supervisors were former ministers. I mean, so it's a very faith-based, spiritual, higher power orientation towards recovery. And I was really on the cusp of more professionalization and having people with an academic background as opposed to recovery background coming in, which was great because we basically, no offense to my colleagues at the time, we knew nothing. We were making things up as we went. The program you met me in, I got hired at Addiction Research Foundation in 1986. The master came knocking my door in 88 because I was probably the most qualified social worker in the community to teach addiction, and I had two years' experience. So we literally were making up as we went. And so the books I have now, that are coming out in third editions. I literally spent my weekends reading everything I could. Remember, no online education back then, so real books, real libraries, and pulling things together. And what I realized is that there were very few Canadian academics and certainly very few people writing from a holistic standpoint. I mean, what I'm lucky in doing is I have a degree in science, a degree in psychology, and a background in social work. And so I come from this holistic standpoint and historically, and still today, the field is very compartmentalized. You've got people who are really good in the biological, outstanding in the psychological counseling, and have a good appreciation for the social. But because the way we're educated, not a lot of people bring all those together. And that, just by pure folly and chance, is what I do, is I have these different perspectives. And I spent my career trying to bring people and ideas together as opposed to diverge them.
2: Wow. And that's an interesting story and an interesting background so and we'll get into the psychological social, and social and biological stuff, but where do you see then from the last thirty years the mental health and addiction field? Like do you see it obviously it's it's a huge conversation piece now, but is there still so much more growth to go or like
0: what do yeah, you think ab- absolutely. Um so interesting enough, I've actually talked to a colleague of mine from Roger and in nursing, looking at sort of the next piece. We have, for the, not much better at helping people. In the and the next piece for me is to look at the family piece. Supporting families, families as caregivers, and families as, I mean, there's again a dichotomy. Families who spend all their energy and all their support helping their loved ones with addiction issues, and those who just get hurt so badly, they walk away. they tired and exhausted themselves. they had no support in helping their loved ones with an addiction issue, or because it's a recurring issue over and over again, they literally just get worn out by it, right? Just by helping someone over and over again. And the behaviors that someone engages in when they have an addiction, I mean, the first thing it does, it changes your brain, changes who you are. And so the person you know becomes somebody different. And it can be frustrating, not being able to deal with the person you know, but it's an addiction issue. And some families just say, can't do it my own sanity and walk away from it. So, I mean, that's the next sort of phase where we've gone. Historically, addiction has been and needs to be a very individual, selfish process. We need to fix you. But as you well know, Ryan, we don't live in isolation. There's a whole context around us. And the field has ignored that for the most part. We're getting a bit better, but there's a heart. well, not me placing it family treatment or if, again, the person that you're involved with in a relationship or your child or your parent has an addiction issue. Where do you go as a family member for counseling and support? So that's my, that's what sort of the, the field is my area of interest going forward and sort of the latter half of my career now. Yeah, that connection
2: piece, right, is so important. But if the person's not willing or, or wanting
0: to. Or not ready to, right? I mean, So I'm, you know, as, a, as a social worker, right, that's my primary position. A social worker, um, I follow what we call a trans theoretical model of change is that people, when they're active in their addiction, don't know they need to change. And so if we can just get them thinking about who they think they are, is not who they actually are, and get them saying, hey, is this who I want to be? Or is this who my environmental makes me be, only allows me to be? What can I change? Or what can I help others to help me change? But again, what makes a addiction to drugs different than any other sort of behavior is it changes your brain. It actually changes the way your brain functions. And I'm an evolutionist, so for better or worse, and for me, there is, only one people on the planet because we all have the same brain. We have the same neurotransmitters. Our brains, while they all work quite differently, all work in the same principles. So we're one species. So it doesn't matter who you are. You take a drug, it's going to change you from the person that you are.
2: So, And we've been using the word addiction a bunch already. So, so what, what actually is the definition then of an addiction? Because I feel like people yeah. don't know exactly what it is. And there's
0: compulsive behavior. Yeah. So you can spend a whole podcast just asking people what the best you right? They're all wrong. I'm right, okay? Start with the foundation. <laughs> I'm also a purist, right? Which is uh, makes me a bit of a heretic. Because again, there's three distinct aspects we've been talking about and I'm sure people on your podcast will examine. As humans, we have a biological component. I mean, that's it. There's a biological foundation that you live in. And you maximize that biology. So your health, the way you're born, your genetics, that's all predetermined. Then there's our psychology. It's the way we respond to the environment, the issues that we are presented to us in childhood, how we are raised, in essence, our coping mechanisms. Some people use the word resilient. It's about how, how do you problem solve? And then how do you problem solve the moments of crisis? How do you problem solve the moments where are new and unique to you? So the psychological element is your response to your environment. And then there is your environment, the social context of living is where you live. I mean, literally being born in Canada makes me quite distinct. My ancestors were born in Hungary, very different. So if I'd been born, my father hadn't emigrated or been a refugee and come to Canada, what would my life be like living in a communist regime and then now in this quasi dictatorship versus living in 2019 Canada, which literally is despite our flaws, one of the most progressive nations on the planet, right? You and I have this discussion. When I was in the field and started off in the Eastern Bloc, in Czechoslovakia and Hungary, Romania, things like AA were still underground meetings because there was no addiction in the Eastern Bloc. So being born there would make me a very different person than being born in Canada. So all those three things come together. And so my uh, definition of addiction is a biopsychosocial phenomenon because it's dynamic. It's not static. It changes depending on who you're with, who you interact with. And so if you've got one group of friends, right, who are users, another group of friends who are not users, how do you choose who are more fun? What is more engaging to you or do you isolate yourself from everybody?
2: And so to be honest, before I started taking your course for the longest time, I mean, it wasn't a huge conversation, the addiction stuff, but I always looked at it genetic, like you mentioned, but I was pretty on that side of it's a genetic thing or I took the approach which I think a lot of people did, especially back in the day, the moral theory, right? It's on you. You're the okay. issue. It's on you. Um, can we, so can you give us a couple of examples? Because like, I really want to paint a picture of these different aspects of addiction. And I, one that really s- stuck with me, I was really fascinated with, was that Rat Park
0: yeah. study. Bruce Alexander is one of the most um, unfamous, famous guys in the addiction field. A uh, brilliant guy. He's Canadian. Um, he's from B.C., U.B.C., And a great experiment called Rat Park There's actually a graphic comic online that highlights his, um, his work that you can look up. A lot of people have quoted his work. And again, in the addiction field, didn't have a whole lot of money. So this, uh, so I'll tell you a backstory then I'll tell you about Bruce Alexander. So historically we rate how addictive and what we mean by addictive is basically how physical dependency producing a drug is. And what's that mean? That means how, frequently do is seek a drug. How do you um, go out and try and get this drug? And so they tried to rate different drugs in terms of rats, monkeys, dogs, all sorts of animal experiments, unfortunately, but how they would seek the drug. And so what we do is we put animals in the cage. It's called a Skinner Box. And I did this as an undergraduate. And we teach them to do things. Um, a light turns on and they go uh, press a lever and they get food or they get water. You teach them turn two circles to the right, one circle to the left when there's a flashing blue light, they plus it over five times and they'll get a drink of water. I mean, it's basically that what you'd see training in zoos and animal parks is all operant conditioning. So we do the same thing with rats in the Skinner box. So we give them different drugs, alcohol, cannabis, cocaine, heroin, and we determine how hard they'll work for a drug. And these were the studies that said cocaine is the most addictive drug. It means physical dependency producing. It means animals will work harder to get cocaine than any other drug. So Skinner's looking at this and goes, okay, that's pretty cool except all these experiments are done in a little cage with just food and water, and we always keep our animals a little bit starved, a little bit thirsty, so they'll perform an act, right? So you're always a little bit on edge. And with the drugs, they typically stick an IV in the animal's neck to feed the drug and when they perform. And so Skitter goes, hmm, this doesn't look like reality. If I was in a little cage, was always hungry, always thirsty, with an IV stuck in my neck, maybe I'd be a little anxious as well. So what do we do if we take them and put them in a more natural, safe environment? And so that's what he did. He called this thing rat park. It wasn't very elaborate. It was just um, a large crate where there was some places for the rats to hide. Um, There was food. There was open space where they could communicate. And there was a bunch of rats. They weren't held in isolation. Rats, like humans, are very social. And so what he did, he set this park up. And then he put water, and he put heroin-laced water for them to drink any time they wanted. And sure enough, the rats went and had heroin-laced water every now and then. They drank the regular water way more. So like humans, the rats liked to party a little bit every now and then. But for the most part, they hung out with the other rats. They had sex in a private area where we weren't being observed. They would run around and play the rat buddies. And they were not uh, angry. They weren't violent towards each other. So Alexander's response was, if we put people in a safe environment, they will experiment with drugs, but for the most part they'll interact on an animal level socially with each other in nonviolent non aggressive manner
2: yeah and that's a perfect example of that right the, so the environment and the connection we talked about earlier and the reason why I brought that up is because I want people to understand that you know that you won 't always have the right environment, you can go find it, but having the connection with people can change so much and i know people will hear this and go well you're talking about animals so let's go one step further uh in your book you reference uh
0: the war and i think it was heroin use in the war for soldiers yeah and so that's that's excellent nice connection ryan well done this is yeah exactly animals are animals we're not animals well we're mammals so the classic example and again one that what people talk about is vietnam i'm an old guy so vietnam was part of my upbringing part of my cultural experience those people were younger Vietnam, now I'm going to be a neo Marxist here, with the geopolitical conflict between the United States and Russia over territoriality. What it was was a bunch of 18 year old kids from Iowa, from North Dakota, Minnesota, being taken from either because they were great athletes and didn't want to go to college or because they were poor kids and had no future, being plunked out of their homes and dropped into a rainforest. And so in um, Georgia, there is um, a military museum that recreates, in a very, very small context, was like walking in a rainforest in Vietnam. And so you walk into this dark room, and it's hot, it's damp, and every now and then a flash of light comes at you, which is to represent someone shooting at your head. And I say it would have lasted about seven seconds before the sweat started dripping off. So now you take an eight year old kid who's never been outside of their area, never seen drop them overseas, put them some basic training, and now people are trying to kill them that they cannot see and don't know why. We'd call this a high stress environment. And so what happened is, and the US government knew this, I mean, it's no secret anymore, it's all documented historically, is that of those ground troops, 10% developed an addiction. And I'm using that word on purpose, right? And so they were using cannabis and heroin on a regular basis because every day they may die, they'd seen their bodies blown up, killed, injured, and so the rate of attrition of those soldiers was very high high the war. So what they did is they set up a series of hospitals along the west coast of the United States and they transition to soldiers. So they go from inland Vietnam to either the coast or Japan, they transition and they send them back to the United States. During that transition period, of the approximately 10% of soldiers who were deemed to be addicted when they got back to the United States, only 10% of that percent actually needed treatment. Now they probably and we didn't have the term post disorder, there's all sorts of psychological wounds and all sorts of other issues. But the need to use the drug once we took them out of the high stress environment was gone. Not that they didn't have other psychological damage, not that they didn't have other emotional issues, but the need to cope with it using drugs, the majority of them was gone. Wow. And that's what we've been horrible in the addiction field is that we'll take people and we'll, I mean, we can treat, I can withdraw you quite nicely depending on what drug it is, three to five days, the methanol maintenance, voxel, methadone, voxel, treatment program for. You know, a couple of years and we knew off, no problem whatsoever. I can provide you excellent counseling. I can send you to a support group, be an AA group, be a women for sobriety group, all sorts of supports. But if I don't change your environment. If I don't change the context, you go back into. And so, just an example years ago, I did a training program, much like you took from me at McMaster, for a detox in Toronto, down the Parkville area. The guys are great. They love the trains. They said, How wonderful. Oh, you're smart. Great ego boost for me. But you know, you're wasting our time. And I go, I know I'm wasting your time. Is because more than half of your clients, once they leave the detox, go back and live on the streets. So you can provide all the counseling, all the nourishment, all the support you want to. But I put you down downtown Toronto with nowhere to live, and it's November. You know what? Uh, really, what are your options?
2: Yeah. And it, it's the so it's kind of the same. Um, it's all the trauma stuff, right? Because a lot of people turn to become addicted because of something traumatic in their life. And really – they get looked at and they go, okay, so you have this, but they don't actually look at the childhood trauma or something that caused this.
0: And the reality, I just finished um, seeing the Queen movie. I just saw the Elton John movie. And the reality is, and again, this, the word trauma is overused, and people are, some people get quite antsy and But again, it goes back to that psychological piece. Trauma is something that overwhelms your ability to cope, that leads double pressure upon you and changes your behavior. And so it's easy to see the star, I mean, all oh, these all these stars, all the creative people, oh, they all had trauma. I, I would argue that most of us, to be human in our society, have some level of trauma. I'm now working with a group of refugees. I did some work with the Muslim community in um, London, Ontario, looking at the role of their faith in being a barrier to seeking addiction treatment. And so the notion of to be human in our society is to have some level of trauma. Now, is it severe enough to each addiction? For some people, absolutely. Some people are resilient and have the same circumstances and don't. So that's that unique aspect. What would trigger you may not trigger me. And what you may think is trivial for me. Again, one more example. I hope I don't go on too long. I was working years ago with a group of firefighters in Toronto. And I had one firefighter who was talking about his friend, who was literally climbing up the ladder. He wasn't in a fire. He wasn't doing a rescue. He was on the ladder. But that triggered him and he got paralyzed on the ladder. I'm not sure the last incident or five people he rescued someone that died it wasn't an incident of trauma. It was going back to the ladder again for them. Yeah, exactly. You shake your head. And I go, exactly. What is it? That, and that's what makes it so unique. I don't know sure it's going to fire and make you freeze in your tract. I can look at the situation in the hospital and see blood everywhere, not be frozen. But I see my wife in surgery. and I can't watch them take a needle out of her arm, right? So, again, the relationship we have with people also impacts.
2: Yeah. And that's why it's so interesting to talk to you because you really look at Look at every aspect of it. So from there, what advice then, I mean, if any, uh, on a podcast, can you really give for people that maybe are trying to battle through an addiction or a loved one that's looking at somebody with an addiction? Because I don't want people as, that's the biggest thing that we already talked about is you don't want to look at that person and just go, no, you're worthless or it's on you.
0: Yeah. And so the, one of the biggest changes that, uh, and you mentioned earlier on in the, in the podcast, is that. The attitudes have changed so much, right? So there was very, very shame based, and there's not. There's still a level of shameless, particularly among some cultures, uh, some faith groups. Often, newcomers to of Canada don't have the same social context in their home country, so they come here and they hide the addiction issues. But there certainly is a level of, oh, we're embarrassed. This, and the person's an embarrassment to my family, an embarrassment to me. That has slowly changed. I'm a big supporter of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm a big supporter of, support, of self help groups. I think they're incredible resource to help millions of people, but at the same point in time, it's still Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, why in 2019 are we still hiding people away in, in church basements or in hospital back rooms, as opposed to, this is a reality of living. I mean, addiction affects up to 15% of the gay population. So that's the first question is about the fact that, you know what, if you're embarrassed by it, that's not on you, that's on society. I'm not embarrassed by the fact that my wife had a, a gallbladder attack had to go to a hospital and use tens of thousands of medical resources. You know what? It made her healthy. She's better now. Fantastic. At the same point in time, someone has to say, oh, my wife's got an addiction issue. I can't tell her about it. And so that's, I mean, the first step the fact that we want to equate addiction with any other type of health issue. We need to resolve. If my wife didn't have her gallbladder removed, she would have died. If you don't deal with an addiction issue, you will die. You may not die immediately, but you'll die prematurely. And as you get close, and I'm almost 60 now, as you get closer to 60, 25 is not that old. You know? <laughs> so and when you're 20 years old, oh, I know, if I lived to 60, it's way past my prime. Trust me, it ain't. 60 is a good age to be at. So that's what I want to look at is that treat this as any other health issue. And there are lots of people out there like yourself, addiction treatment agencies, lots of good docs and counselors and psychologists and social workers and addiction counselors who say, yeah, you're treatable. Let's make you better. So that's the first element. And two, as a family member, is to know that this is a long process. Your loved one did not become addicted in three days. This has been something that, as you indicated, Ryan, something happened in childhood, something that triggered in high school. I mean, ask people to tell me what they had for lunch on April 14th, and no one can tell me, because it's not it doesn't matter. But ask them about one embarrassing thing that happened to you in high school, and people can tell you immediately. Everyone's so wired up about Looking good and not being there during different the times in your lifetime. So, the family member is that your loved one may not be ready to change yet. They may need additional support. They may need more time. Take care of yourself. Do something for yourself. Make sure that you stay healthy so that you don't become alienated by trying to support them or you don't get burned out by your envy on them. Provide them the resources, this notion of, of tough love and boundaries, and you can't have to say no to them. Um, that's a very controversial, very traditional approach. Very controversial. Obviously, you don't want to be giving people all of your money so they can go buy lots and lots of crystal methamphetamine. At the same point in time, there are ways to support an individual that's not enabling, that allows them to know that they can come to you for support when they're ready, but that you don't approve of the behavior of them abusing their bodies and abusing you. So it's not tough love. It's about what our relationship is about. I respect you when you're here, but I can't live with you when you're using drugs. So let's find a place where we can connect still. I know that I still love you, still part of my relationship, I'm still connected to you, still part of my family, but this behavior is not healthy for you or for me. So when you're doing it, I'm not with you.
2: Yeah, that's, that's great advice. And, and the big piece too that uh, you mentioned, like they have to be ready and wanting to, but it's, and with the mental health and addiction stuff too, we really are our own worst enemies because of that. We don't talk about it. We just, no, I don't, I'm fine, I'm fine. But with everything else, like disease-wise, it's open, everyone's, you know, I have this, I have that, I'm sick. Well, you are sick. If, if it's a, an addiction piece or a mental health piece, like,
0: just ask. Yeah, I mean, we shut down the gardener in Toronto to have cancer runs. We don't see the, shutting down the gardener to have addiction runs, do we? So there's different levels of support for it, and there's different messages sent. And to be quite honest, and not to be, not to be high on my horse or to tend to be, this is, there's a lot of ignorance about addiction, a lot of ignorance. I don't do many high school talks anymore, but someone coerced me into doing one, so I went. And I thought, oh man, here's this old guy coming and talk to all these young people. So I did a little song and dance, 15, 20 minutes. I realized all these teenagers knew virtually nothing about cannabis, right? Cannabis was about to be legalized just before the law changed. And they knew nothing about vaping. They knew nothing about cannabis. They had all this stuff from the internet and from their friends and whatnot. They had stuff that didn't have knowledge. They didn't have facts. They had stories, innuendo, and, you know, this guy did that, this girl did that. They were all rumor, but the actual knowledge of the drugs, what it did to them, what it did to their brains, really no more knowledgeable than when I was a teenager in the 70s. That actually surprised me, is that despite all the information knowledge, despite all the prevention we're going on, is from my very narrow um, exposure to teenagers in a pretty affluent community, um, they were actually uh, pretty stunned when it came to what drugs were actually doing to the body and what they're putting into their bodies. Wow,
2: interesting. Yeah, it's just such a fascinating uh, field of study to me. And like I said, I've, I'm learning so much in the course I'm taking, or courses I should say. So I guess quickly, what advice can you give people then that, that might be afraid to, to come out and talk about these things?
0: So number one, there's also, the community you're in, there's all sorts of resources. So if you don't sure, there's two places to go. Family counseling agencies are good resources just for family issue, child issue, parent issues. If you want to talk addiction, family counseling agencies. Most of these communities geared to income, so you got money to pay. You have money to pay a little bit, so a great resource. If you work for a company, right? See if you have an employee assistance program. Employees and programs are free counseling in your free workplace. You can go up to six times usually no fee whatsoever and just go, hey, it's confidential, know what your workplace needs to know. If you've got a program, you can send your child or your partner Mm -hmm. to the program again for free counseling. So there just say, Hey, tell me about this. And to be very frank, I've got a question myself. Even as a counselor, you realize that life can be overwhelming. And just because you can work on other people's problems, don't mean you have problems yourself. So I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to be very open and tell people who are listening that, yeah, I've gone for counseling couple times in my life. Once around workplace issues and once about family issues, because despite what I know and what I've done for 30 years, I was smart enough to know that I couldn't help myself. I had to go to somebody else to be a sounding board. Number three, there's some, again, most communities in Ontario and across Canada have agencies there. You look up the internet, use a phone if you have to that their job is to do an assessment. You go in and talk for an hour and they will tell you if you've got a severe problem, a mild problem, or this is just a daily living issue. And so there are free resources that you can access or don't cost a whole lot of money, They you can just talk. Earlier asked me about trauma, and I said I think almost everyone's traumatized by life. Very few people actually go and talk about this, but they can handle it themselves. If they could handle it themselves, we wouldn't have psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, family counselors, addiction counselors, clergy, mutual aid groups, we wouldn't have a whole industry around keeping us healthy if you could handle it yourself. So, I know it's tough. Swallow your pride and say, I can't fix everything. I ask individuals, say, I don't need counseling. Say, how's an airplane work? Say, it flies. I go, but how's the engine work? The engine broke, could you fix it? Well, no, I'm not educated and trained in that. So do you have a degree in counseling? Can you fix and train yourself never being educated in that area? But try and get that example about with technology, with IT, I, I know how to use a computer, but God forbid the computer breaks, I send it up to a specialist. So how come when we break, you know what, go go to a doctor, but when our brain's hurting, we don't go and help some fix it. That's a great example too. And, and
2: I've talked about this a bunch of times with different people. I, and we, the, a car, like we talk about a car. We, we go for regular service of our car or we might work out and eat properly, but we don't really take the steps to really get the mind right and stuff. And I, I was a perfect example of that. At 16, my father passed away. Mm. And my mom was like, do you want to talk to somebody? And I went, no. Why would I tell a stranger about my problems, right? Yeah. Sure enough, you know, fast forward, I'm 35 now and just would just abuse alcohol. We It became, you know, a Thursday night and then a Friday. And then it became a Thursday to Sunday. And I had to do a lot of work and a lot of steps to go. Why? Why am I always the drunkest guy at the party? Like, I don't need it to be funny. I don't need it to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Why am I doing this? And then you know, you go to counseling, you go to couples therapy, and you really work through it. And being a first responder, making sure I gave my father CPR when he when he died. So it started to trigger even more when I got hired my first year of you know giving CPR to people. I was like, holy. So breaking all that down and finding out like, okay, I think this is it. This is the main source of all of this, getting that in check. And now actually looking at alcohol as a healthier way and looking at, do I need this drink or do I just want to enjoy it? It's a whole different mindset.
0: You know, those are two brilliant comments you've made. Number one, that notion about your dad. And thanks for telling me that. That goes back to my firefighter incident, right? Is that, the guy in the ladder is about, didn't know why he froze, but there's a reason why he froze, right? And so, yeah, that linkage you have every time because there was this, there's your traumatic event, there's your life-altering event, and at the mental state, it's in the state, your brain is really rewiring itself. Yeah. Another thing you say is also very interesting is I talk about what is addiction. Is addiction when you no longer control the drug, the drug controls you. And you just gave a wonderful example about knowing why you use drugs, what it does for you, and and why not to use drugs? So when my kids were little, I said, you can use any drug you want to any time. Come home first and tell me why you need to use it. And they never had, luckily in our family, they never had a reason to need. They had friends that wanted to do it. They wanted to be social. They wanted to know what it felt like, right? Curiosity. But the question was, are you in control of the drug? Do you choose to use the drug? Or are there other factors making you use the drug? And as long as they could do that, I was always good with my kids out, you know, and they always had the help call dad, you got in trouble. One did, one didn't. And so that's the other piece. So that's a great example. And I hope people really listen to the fact that the drug can control you. And then you pull it back and now you're in control because that's a huge, huge insight that many people don't have. So good for you for having that.
2: Yeah. And, and like I said, it's, it's so important and it's not this podcast. Again, is helping people hopefully mentally and stuff. And it's not to say, you know, don't use alcohol. Don't you, if you, you can't stop that. If that's what people want to do, but, have an understanding of maybe why, and then if it is a huge issue, right, then take those steps to eliminate it, but also make sure you're ready to eliminate it, whatever it is you're using. Because if you go and you're not ready, right, it's just going to probably get worse for you. And if people are forcing you to go, it's going to be even, it's just going to be worse. I'm doing the family addiction piece now uh, program with McMaster, and that's, that's a huge one, really hammering home, like, yeah, okay, you can go as a family, but if the person that's there is the, sor- the source of the problem that comes with you, being the family member, the son, the daughter, whatever, if they're not ready, then they're just going to come with you, you, say what you want them to say, and then just go back to doing what they're doing. And it just frustrates you because and then, they're working energy, in, right, and they're not. Exactly. So it just adds, it can just add a whole other piece to the family dynamic. So uh, I think that's an awesome way to end this. So before we do,
0: where... Are you on social media? Where can people find you? Reach out? Yeah, I will give you an email address because I'm, a, I'm again, an old guy, so I'm just very excited. I still use an overhead projector when I teach my real clients. Um, so I will spell my email address. It's R-C-S-I-E-R-N-I at UWO.ca, dot at uwo.ca, or I'm a professor of social work, at King's University College in London. So if you go to King's University College website, social work department, you'll see my smiling face. And I say this in sincerity, I say it in all my classes, is I've got a really, really big ego. So if someone asks me a question, and I'm in Canada, I usually get back in 48 hours. I love talking about drugs. I got into this field to make a difference, and I think people like you doing podcasts like this are a fantastic way to continue making a difference. I can contribute and help anyone in a small way, you know what, I still want to do so. so. Good on you for doing this podcast. We're talking about a really tough topic. Well done. Yeah,
2: I, I appreciate that. And I hope people, you know, we'll put that in the show notes and I hope they jot it down and reach out to you and say, hey, I heard heard you on the podcast, blah, I got a question, you know, do whatever it is. And so I have one final question that I ask everybody because it kind of ties everything together so people can really get to know the guest at the end. Uh, what moment of adversity are you most grateful for today?
0: Failing. So um, I was... um. I'm a kid from the north end of Hamilton, right? And so, I mean, the classic story. First one from Ms. Family go to university, walk on campus, what a big deal it is, right? The chip on my shoulder. Uh, back in the day, um, I'm a social worker, and we used to give grades for our courses. And so, third, and I was a, a decent student, but not a spectacular student. The third year university, I just hit everything. I hit all the right easy courses, got really good grades, came first in my class, and had the highest grade in the internship. So that's actually doing social work. I go off to my fourth year, and I say, I'm going to take the hardest internship you can give me and do something totally foreign to me and with a big chip on my shoulder. And you know what? I don't listen to my supervisors. I'm not a good student. I, I, I do work fine with the families and the kids, my children's age, and, but I don't get along with my bosses because I'm smarter than they are, right? I'm 22 years old. I'm smarter than anyone on the planet, right? And so it comes along the final day, and they go, no, fail. I'm already in grad school. My grades are good. I'm already in grad school. I'm already going to do my master's degree. And they say, we're not passing that. And I went, what do you mean that passing? Me? There was no dialogue, there was no conversation. I am on my fault, part you on, on theirs saying, you know what, do this, correct this. Along, along comes my professor. And she says, wow, you're a good student, you're this and you're that, but they failed you. They give you an F, you can't graduate. So we'll do something, we'll do a makeup. We're gonna put you in a situation for two weeks and see how you do. I'm there four days, they offer me a contract. So I learned humility, I learned the fact that I don't know everything, and I also in the fact that during that period of time where I was about to lose everything, I said, fine, what else can I do? Is that the notion of things in life suck some days. And so how I respond to it. And so for me, the biggest adversity was the fact that when I need somebody, and this professor was fine, she's passed on now, she came along and she took interest in me. She cared enough about me as an individual to say, I can help you next level. And so that's what I want to be in my career too. I want be that guy that sees people who are doing a real good job, but just need a bit of a push, and I want to be that push. So the adversity has made me who I am. And the earlier comment about the fact that I come out on everybody's post when I teach. And this professor of mine back in 1982 gave me that notion and said, this is what I want to be. I want to be that person that people can count on when they need somebody in their corner. So thanks for the compliment about me as well, too, Ryan. That was my notion of adversity is losing everything and someone caring enough about me to give it back to me.
2: Amazing. The field needs more people like you. I love your message. You're inspiring. You're impactful. You're obviously very well educated, but very, very passionate about this and helping people and and listening and making those connections. So I appreciate you taking this time. And it was awesome. I learned so much in this 40 minutes. It was
0: amazing. Thanks so much, right? I appreciate your time and I appreciate your enthusiasm and for taking the extra step as well, right? I mean, it doesn't matter who you are, what you do, you can take that extra step to be a difference in someone else's life.
2: Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I will talk to you again, hopefully soon.
0: Awesome. Thanks again for your time. Appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. You too. All the best. All right.
2: See ya. That's it for me on Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Rick Scherznik.
1: Thank you for joining us today on the Mental Edge Lifestyle Podcast. If you know someone who can benefit from being part of our community, share this episode with them so they too can continue to grow and sharpen their mental edge never miss an episode by subscribing to the show. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you like to listen. We would love to hear from you. Connect with us at mentaledgeathletics.ca slash lifestyle. And until next time, remember, healthy mind, healthy life.